you here for the first time, are you also uh, new to meditation, any form of meditation? Could you a show of hands? Okay, so most of you have had some experience, whether it's this or some other form. How many people have been to any of the talks in this series? This is the sixth or seventh in that range of talks in this series, all having to do with self-knowledge or self-knowing, a quiet passion. And what I've been attempting to do is build, so there's some repetition um, as a reminder and also to help the people who have not been to any or all of the talks to connect in some way. Um, self and knowing. I'll use the terms knowledge and knowing interchangeably. Uh, but when I use self-knowledge or self-knowing, self-knowledge is obviously much more familiar. Uh, but I prefer self-knowing because it's a verb. Uh, and knowledge has profound implications. And so... Um, I keep having to say something about that. Um, and then there's also self. So self-knowing. What is a self? Uh, maybe we should start with that, because that's what we're... Somehow it's the self trying to know the self. And already a big problem. If any of you have been here, many of you have, of course, and other Buddhist centers, you know this whole notion of self. Uh, self, not self, big self, little self, no self, empty self, the observing self, original nature, true nature. So there's a lot of confusion, especially at the beginning, and it's very difficult to teach. Now I can give you, share my experience in the first years that I was teaching. Uh, every time anatta, that's the technical term for it in this uh, lineage, or it's sometimes translated as not self or no self, would come up, people would get uncomfortable, and then the questions would start. Well then, if there's no self, then who's here? Or, of course, not realizing those are profound questions. Uh, what, what gets enlightenment? What is suffering? Uh, and when you're teaching, it's not like you love to hear every question. And so some more and more of those questions, I could never answer them satisfactorily, in part because in those days everyone was pretty much a beginner, very much of a beginner. And it's not necessary to go into that so deeply because it just uh, creates a lot of confusion. Uh, it's difficult to understand. And then as you keep practicing, it actually uh, is quite sensible and logical, I think. Okay. And so what I noticed that is, uh, as the years started unfolding, I'd say it's probably the first three or four years, I started teaching not self or no self or not to less and less. 
uh, one day I realized I hardly teach it at all. And then I saw the reason that I don't teach it is every time I would start, I'd get negative reinforcement, like shocked by looks from people and the kinds of questions. And, uh, and it reminded me of an experiment that actually happened. I've been assured that it did happen by someone who was in the room at MIT many years ago in a psychology class. The professor taught uh, behavioral psychology. Uh, Pavlov, Skinner, reinforcement. Positive behaviors, uh, if you reward someone, you get more of that. If you punish them, you get less of that. And he was uh, very much uh, devoted to that approach. And the students at MIT uh, used the teaching and uh, were mischievous. And so he was a pacer as well. He'd go from one side of the room to the other. And so the class cooked up this scheme. And every time he would go to this side of the room, people would get distracted, drop pencils, start scratching their head, uh, look out the window, whatever. And whenever he would go to this side of the room, they would just look with incredible interest. And little by little, they had him boxed into a corner. Okay. Uh, so this is what we're trying to get to know. And it's an odd thing because that which we don't even know, we don't even know what it is is trying to get to know what it doesn't know what it is. Self knowing is what else can you rely upon? So as I'm using it, it's more of a just it's the English language. It's a convention, uh, and its reference is just that this one, you, all of us. Um, the knowing the reason that self knowledge is uh, tricky. Actually, there's a profound reason for, it's not the word, you can use it as long as you understand its meaning. Uh, some of you may know more about the history of science uh, than I do, but what I know suggests the following. With a huge help from the ancient Greeks, uh, the modern world very much relies upon measure. Measure has been incredibly powerful in development of science. So it's not that it's a hallucination, but it is finally a convention. So measure is extremely important. In meditative circles, especially in ancient India, what was considered of supreme importance was that which was immeasurable, that which it can't be measured. And so self-knowledge, we're very uh, concerned with accumulations of information, of what we might call knowledge, a little bit perhaps higher than just information, conclusions, relationships, our own experiences, the experiences of wise people. Uh, and it's not like that's useless. Obviously, that's quite valuable. But that isn't the way the Buddha is using this capacity to know, know yourself. That is, when the Buddha says at death, be a lamp unto yourself, that is, the key thing in, in the, the Buddhist teaching is, is, in Western terms, we have a phrase which we use a lot, know thyself. Okay. Uh, and so it's easy to, and at first I think most people do, we turn it into a constant accumulation of insights, which are really conceptual insights or reflective insights, skillful use of observation and thinking, to add to the story of me my story. 
and we had more chapters, elaborate on different chapters, revise some of the past chapters. And people go on retreats and come back with books, longer retreats, books full of their own insights. Me and my insights on this retreat. That's not it. That, that doesn't liberate you. It's, it's a nice story. It adds to the story of that, which is what is, in this teaching at any rate, is the problem. In other words, it's contributing to a deeper and deeper sense of self-centeredness, of creating some kind of center from which everything issues to which everything happens. You call it ego, egocentric, etc. Uh, the kind of knowing that is talked about here is not um, so much information. Now, there are valid things that you will learn about yourself. They're the kinds of things that you learn in therapy, you learn from common sense, by just paying attention and living out your life. How can you not learn something, you know, as you, as you live? We all do. And then we might repeat it again and again. If you have children, you tell them, and then they tell their children what grandma and grandpa said. And, um, that doesn't liberate you as entertaining as it is or as uh, consoling or interesting as it is. Uh, the kind of knowing that is emphasized is not to exclude that, but it's essentially, most of it uh, seems to be refinements on what the personality is, what this ego is an attempt to improve our ability to categorize it, to come up with labels uh, and characterizations about what I am, I used to be, I will be, um, based on past experience, therapy, and so forth. It has obvious utility. The thrust of the Buddhist teaching, at any rate, is to go beyond that. But you have to start where you are. Um, that's why I prefer the term self-knowing. That, or if you want to call it self-knowledge, it's fine with me as long as we understand that what I'm talking about, it's something that's dynamic and quite alive and it's ongoing. That is, the knowing is something that is happening from moment to moment. And it's not looking for patterns. Now and then a useful pattern comes up and highlights where you have a problem and where perhaps some care is needed or some extra attention. But the, the, the kind of knowing and insight that liberates people in this approach is the clear seeing of the way things are right now. And of course, often what you're seeing is how you are making this moment into an occasion to solidify yourself into being of this, that, or the other. And in this teaching, that's exactly what's causing the problem. So that even to begin with, and this can be years, the meditator is part of that. The meditator uh, is just the ego camouflaged as a, as a yogi, decked out as someone special. But what can we do? We have to start where we are, which is as um, egomaniacs. It's, it's not fatal, it's just true. We have to start with that, uh, because if we start where we aren't, what would that be like? I mean, it would be, an, it would be uh, an illusion, and it would be an impersonation of nothing, which if you can do it, more power to you. But it would still be that me that's trying to pretend to not be a me. And so it's awareness through uh, moment to moment. For example, it's not limited to the cushion. 
Self-knowledge is not just is not something that just happens when you sit. Because the ways of the self are revealed all day long. They're revealed through relationship in a very rich way, if you're willing to learn and to look, look and learn. Uh, it's not it's not only with people. It's with objects, it's with nature. It's with yourself. You can begin to see uh, how you relate to what's happening in your life. And in the seeing of it, whatever that is, it starts to weaken, lose its power, fall away, and it takes you. You don't, have to, you don't try to get there. It takes you to another dimension altogether, a dimension of wakefulness where life is much more vivid and clear and where actions that come out of that mind are much more precise, accurate, appropriate, wise, and kind. And so that's the, th the thrust of practice. Um, so the kind of knowing, the kind of knowledge, is something that's, it can't be freeze-dried or bottled or packaged. It's something that's valid and alive in this moment as you see it. And often, not always, but often, if you see something, and again, it depends on the quality of the seeing, as the seeing becomes more fresh and deeper, more steady, the insight the, it has much more power to uproot, for example, uh, behavior that is flawed, that's not doing you any good, but you may have been living this way anyway. Uh, so that's an ongoing thing that is the seeing, the quality of the seeing, if you learn how to do it and practice it, like anything else, it becomes more refined. And the more refined it becomes, the more of a resource it is to free you from unnecessary suffering. Okay, where do we begin? Where do we begin this journey? Some of you are new. And I'll tell you, which I repeat over and over again, because it was so helpful to me. I hope it's helpful to you. The very first teacher I had just simply said, when I said I'd spent 10 days with him and then when we were going separate ways, he just said, I asked him for what now what, and he said, just pay attention to how you actually live. And then he emphasized it, actually. How do you actually live? Okay, that means from moment to moment, you start attending to what's actually happening. To do that, you have to empty the mind of all assumptions expectations, uh, unexamined notions that we don't even know we have, and be willing to, uh, it's like, let yesterday's eyes go and learn how to see with the freshness, and that's what real seeing is in Vipassana. Vipassana seeing and the insights that come out of clear seeing have nothing to do with thought or knowledge. They have nothing to do with past accumulations. The clearer the mind gets, the, the more uh, power, uh, I'm not sure it's, it's as good a word as I can come up with right now, uh, there are different levels and depths of insight. As the mind comes clearer, uh, for example, you can be behaving in a way that's destructive for 20, 30, 40 and more years, and you even know it, and it just goes on and on. You can't seem to stop. 
making vows and New Year's vows and talking about it in therapy. And there it goes again and again. Some things, you see it and it's gone. It's over with. That karma, to use technical language, and if you don't like it, it's just seeing that cause and effect. And it doesn't return again. It's done with. You really got it. But a lot of it doesn't go away, if you've noticed. Or is it just me? <laughs> okay. uh, what seems to make the difference is the practice is coming in closer and examining what's there. That's what we're learning. Everything, in a sense, the, the thrust of Vipassana meditation has everything to do with clear seeing. <coughs> Finally, it's going to all come down to that. This tremendous amount of structure and help, and we'll get to some of that in a moment, but that's all to help us develop Vipassana means clear seeing, deep seeing, special seeing. A Buddha is somebody who's fully awake. Someone who's really, who sees. Who's fully awake is synonymous with fully alive. Okay. Um, someone help me as to where I, I get very concentrated and also very easily <laughs> thrown off course. Anyone remember where I was? I mean, I know where I am. I'm right here. <laughs> it's where I was that no, has no interest to me anymore. So it's... What? The advice, the what? The advice your mentor gave you? How you actually Yeah. Good. Thank you. Uh, so the practice is uh, to begin to live your life and there are hints. If you come to this center and most Buddhist centers, I would say all the religions really share this. And those are some form of, 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 some form of ethical training. Uh, perhaps the distinction in the way the Buddha taught it, it's not so much a commandment that comes on from, from, uh, from up high, from up above, either from God or from a teacher, but rather a training rule. It's something that is, in a sense, you take on faith, but they're so obvious. It's sort of the bare minimum to have a civilization. And some of that has been, has been threatened, as we know. We've dipped below that big time in certain ways. I mean, the human race. Um, as we, so those are what we call the five precepts. At first, you may take them. And was, as you start to see, how do I actually live? The Buddha offers us help. <coughs> I would, to translate what the Buddha is saying in my terms, I feel that what is being said in a very skillful and kind way is that human beings, you don't really know how to live. Let me show you. It may sound arrogant, but perhaps, perhaps he's right. He's, and so there are guidelines. There are some methods if you think of over the thousands of years, many techniques and methods, many kinds of teachings. So there's a lot of help, community like this. But finally, all of it is designed uh, to help us learn how to live. Because it's very clear that we don't know how to live. At least to me it is. And uh, if we have time, I'd like to link up what seems to be very much an individual practice. Me looking into me, me observing what's happening to me, uh, with what's going on uh, in, the, in the world now since 9-11. Um, 
they're not <coughs> separate because they're only they're separated they're separated by the by the mind. Okay, so how do you learn how to live? And the Buddha has given us some principles, some guidelines, but it's not that they're meant to just be followed blindly. In a sense, most of them are hypotheses. They're suggestions that this might help you live. Not might. The Buddha is saying these are laws, laws that are uh, that I've discovered. I didn't make them up. In other words, there is a, a kind of a, an intelligence, whether you call it a higher intelligence or universal intelligence. If you like God, that's fine with me. They're all words. And when the mind gets clear, more and more it's able to tap that lawfulness. Good science is doing that on a level of material. And good science also has a, mysteri a mysterious part. It's not just building from knowledge. The great breakthroughs often come because from, from people who are at home in the mystery of it all. That's prior to knowledge. Okay, so learning how to live, how do you do that? that was, uh, that's how I see it. And everything that's put forward by the Buddha is meant to be uh, something that you test with your own experience. And if you, don't, if you find that it's not true, then drop it. That's, those are the Buddha's words. Uh, you could call it ouch teaching. What does he mean by ouch teaching? Because there are thousands of words put out by the Buddha, principles and guidelines and Dharma talks and so forth, chants and it's endless. And yet finally, what it's all leading to is the teachings of ouch. Okay. What that teaching is, is uh, in ancient China, supposedly, there was uh, a younger teacher who was quite, uh, made quite a flash. In other words, he was, whoa, this guy is hot. And he was giving Dharma talks and people were coming in droves. And one day, an old master came from a different part of China, well-known, and the younger teacher saw him, sitting, saw him sitting in the back and said, out of respect, the elderly were respected in ancient China. He said, please come and sit up here. So he had him sit alongside of him. And then this uh, uh, teacher, who was brilliant and uh, obviously uh, had his audience uh, interested in what he was saying, as his Dharma talk unfolded, the older teacher would either, either nod off or go, <laughs> no, no, just nod his head left to right. And the younger teacher was starting to become a little uncomfortable. And he kept going, and the older teacher was either nodding off or going, no. <laughs> Finally, at the end of the, t uh, the teaching, he went up and said, uh, you know, uh, excuse me, I, uh, you didn't seem to think very much of my Dharma talk. Uh, what was wrong with it? And he was annoyed. And the older teacher said, everything you said was just the Buddha said, the Buddha said, the Buddha said, or this master said, the Buddha said this. Uh, and he said, I didn't hear anything of your own. I don't know anything that you know. And the teacher was stunned, at which point the older man leaned over, gave this younger guy a hard pinch, and he screamed, ouch! And then the older one said, ah, that's the teaching that I traveled all these miles to get. <laughs> you don't get it. Okay, what can I do? <laughs> Direct experience. So that one ouch, it's not, it's not the Buddha's ouch. 
and you have to get your own ouch. Me too. Okay, you try. <laughs> I thought it would help. <laughs> I've set the Dharma back a few thousand years. He, someone who's new, he said, all of that teaching is just about ouch. I don't think I'm going back to that place again. Some of the, uh, what to attend to, certainly the ethical, the precepts can be helpful. And at the beginning, many people don't feel comfortable taking them in any formal way, and that's understandable. But they're so basic, uh, not to kill, uh, not to lie, not to steal, not to misuse sexual energy, uh, to not uh, allow the mind to be clouded by intoxicants. Uh, there are other guidelines as you start to see how do I actually live, to kind of simplify it a bit. To lay a foundation, self-knowledge, self-knowing, requires a steady and strong mind. If you really want to get to know yourself, uh, the mind, it's helpful if the mind and the nervous system have some stability. I don't mean to upset anyone if you feel you don't. But if you don't, it's not fatal. But what that means is the body is important. Now, in Buddhist circles, it varies. People give it, sometimes it's just simply the statement of moderation. Moderation in everything. And that can take you a long way, just that simple guideline. But when you look closely, this mindfulness that you hear talked about here all the time, uh, clearly that's out of which insight can come. But it also can help us in the most ordinary way that's quite useful. Let's take the body for a moment. Uh, if you start paying attention to the body, that is to see how you actually live, start to notice what the body's needs are. How much food does it need? Too much won't work too well, especially if you start to value having a clear mind. If you want the mind to be fresh and clear, diet is not irrelevant. Energy is not irrelevant. Health is not irrelevant. A nervous system that has some pliability is not irrelevant because as meditation deepens, there's a refinement, the energy that's released becomes more and more refined. And it's helpful if the nervous system is adequate to receive that energy. Okay, so but I'm not advocating a particular diet at all. They're more than we all know. They're all over the place. It's more if you pay attention, you'll begin to see how much and what foods, and I'm not saying don't learn from some of the dietary hints that are, that are around. Uh, sure, but test them with your experience because otherwise it's somebody else telling you what's good for you. It may or may not be. Everyone's body is different, situations, different conditions. If you have to start somewhere, so take somebody perhaps who studied this. Now, if some of you are thinking, well, why is he wasting my time with this? I can go to any New Age workshop or bread and circus and hear about diet, and then I'm going to say sleep and water and exercise. Okay. I thought this is wisdom, vipassana, insight meditation. I've heard enough about that, about the body. But the truth is that it's a whole person that meditates. And even if the techniques at times may seem as if they're focusing in on one facet, finally it's about a whole person. A whole person is suffering, 
a whole person gets free, a whole person lives out life, and there's just life to be lived. And it's a question of how we do that. So that uh, we can learn how much, for example, too much sleep is not going to be helpful. Not enough sleep is not going to be helpful. The same with everything else. If you start paying attention, you can begin to, uh, and it changes as you age, as climate changes, the seasons change. And uh, rather than seeing it in a kind of grim, medicinal way, perhaps you can see it as uh, um, discovery, as exploration. See, self-knowledge is you learning about you firsthand. That's what it is. And there's tremendous energy and joy that can come when you learn something for yourself. Have you seen that? Even if it's not about you. Let's say you finally get something in the field that you're working in or your job. But in my experience, when you really in a fresh way, not because the Buddha said it, Freud said it, or anyone else said it, you genuinely see something that's significant about yourself in that moment. And when the insights are deep enough, they can really help you uproot things that you see that are not doing any good. What that typically brings, at least it has for me, uh, a lot of uh, joy, more confidence in the practice. And to me, what this is about is the art of living. The sitting and retreats play a vital part of it. But they're not it. And daily life is not it. There's only life, finally. Life is prior to Buddhism. I don't know if you know that. Someday Buddhism won't be here, but life, oh, I don't know, I hope so, will be here. Okay. So this kind of attention uh, is something that, uh, it's not to learn it in some uh, methodical way that uh, is so uninteresting that you soon not want to do it. And this applies to the different levels of, of insight. To me, um, Vipassana meditation is uh, first and foremost the art of living. And notice that it's an ING at the end. It's not like you master it once and for all. Okay, got that one down. It's ongoing. One of the most moving, and I never tire of reading and rereading this. This is from a Japanese artist that perhaps some of you know. His name is Hokusai. And he did a series that he's famous for, 100 Views of Mount Fuji. At any rate, this is his attitude towards art. His art is not self-knowledge. Self but, uh, but what I'm saying is, see, what art is, I looked it up in the dictionary, actually. One of the meanings of art is that it puts things in their proper place. Okay. And it's the same for living. The art of living is learning how to put everything in its proper place. Uh, sleep, eating, nothing's trivial. And here's one way to look at it. It's a way that if it even begins to pique your interest, I think you'll be fortunate because uh, it's something that just grows and grows. I found it to be endless. This is um, Hokusai speaking about his art. From the age of six, I had a mania for drawing the form of things. By the time I was 50, I had published an infinity of designs. 
but all I have produced before the age of 70 is not worth taking into account. At 73, I've learned a little bit about the real structure of nature, of animals, of plants, of trees, birds, fish, insects. In consequence, when I'm 80, I shall have made, full, have made still more progress. At 90, I shall penetrate the mystery of things. At 100, I shall certainly have reached a marvelous stage. And when I'm 110, everything I do, be it but a dot or a line, will be alive. I beg those who live as long as I to see if I do not keep my word. Written at the age of 75 by me, once Hokusai, today Guako Rojin, the old man mad about drawing. <laughs> Uh, that one seemed to have a, a developmental, you know, it gets better and better. Uh, our practice, as you know, is to take it from moment to moment. But of course, it's, if you set up goals way ahead of yourself in meditation, you're not in the moment. You can, there can be uh, aspirations, but the way you get to them is by taking care of the present moment. It keeps being that way. Often people will come to a place of calm in meditation or some nice experience and will say, well, what's next? There's nothing next. Well, this is a hard one to understand. There literally is nothing next, because there's only now. What next is the next now. It's all there is now, and that's all there's ever going to be. It's all there ever was. It's just now. So there's nothing next. But the human mind keeps projecting, oh, this is so quiet. If I do more of this, blah, 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 blah. and then we have a whole scenario of where we're going to get to. And we're in jail again. Go directly to jail, do not pass go. That's an esoteric teaching. <laughs> it comes from a, a game called Monopoly, if some of you are not familiar. Maybe people don't even play it anymore, I don't know. From this dinosaur speaking, it used to be a game that we played. So getting to know the body uh, is part of self-knowing. Getting to... to uh, first-hand learn from your own experience. Um, let's just sample a few other things that are central and that can be very, really interesting for you beginning with right now. I mean, even when you leave here, not this moment. Um, a lot of what is the foundation of meditation has to do with uh, learning about and taking care of the body, uh, learning about speech, and then, of course, the mind itself. Let's take speech. When the teacher that I mentioned, whose name was Krishnamurti, said, pay attention as to how you actually live. The part that was most difficult for me was to pay attention as to how I use these two lips. When, this, these, when I would create a friction, engineered some friction, and words would come out, it was sometimes very painful to hear what was coming out of my mouth if you pay attention. You have to really listen, with an, not with a joint, with an open mind, with a mind that's just the famous beginner's mind. Just, I don't know, just really, how do I do talking? And that includes not talking, silence. Sometimes uh, we've used this at the center since the beginning as a practice for people. Sometimes people who are very shy, so-called introverted, as they pay attention to this realm of communication, 
they see that they have things to say and they don't say it and that it's painful for them. And that little by little they start to speak more and then blabbermouths like myself, we get quieter. It might be hard for you to believe that because if you see me only on Wednesday nights, there is life for me outside of Wednesday night <laughs> uh, where I can be quite quiet and happily so. Okay. So right speech as you start to pay attention as to how you actually live is another fundamental area of human life that helps put a foundation in for the so-called higher things. And in that, what tends to happen as you pay attention is your speech becomes more accurate and more precise. Uh, more and more, you say what you mean and you mean what you say, and the gaps between what you say and the motives that you have and the gaps between what you say and your actions start to narrow down. And when they don't, you see it. That's part of self-knowledge, is getting, getting on to yourself. It's an extraordinary journey and it's not easy. Because what you're doing is you're seeing this self unfold. Uh, and what's being said is learning how to live and self-knowledge are really the same thing. The degree to which we don't understand ourselves, no matter what that is, each person is no standard here. You have to understand yourself, me, myself. The degree to which you don't understand yourself is probably the degree to which you're suffering unnecessarily. Ajahn Chah, who is a teacher, whoop, I'm quoting someone else, who wants to pinch me? <laughs> I'll pinch me. Let's forget about that one. Who cares what Ajahn Chah said? Okay. Now I have to say it. <laughs> but I forgot. Because <laughs> I'm so in the moment. When you start paying attention to speech, and you begin to see uh, what comes out of your mouth, just hear it with, uh, in an open way. Um, not only does that reveal a lot to you about yourself, but it also, uh, you start to learn about listening. Because you can't uh, do, spe speech won't get refined unless you learn how to listen. In fact, uh, it's only if you start paying attention to speech and listening that you learn the art of listening not only to yourself but to others. And so this art of paying attention as to how you live, how you actually live from moment to moment. And what Ajahn Chah uh, often said was that you can use all the techniques and do all the retreats that you want. Finally, it's going to come down to however you got there. Do you understand yourself to what degree or don't you? If you don't, you're still going to be suffering a lot because actions are going to come out of you that are not beneficial for you or for others in your life. And as you come self-knowing, and that's why it's so precious, that's what's really lacking on planet Earth. It's not an energy crisis. It's an understanding crisis. We don't understand ourselves. And writ large, the human race does not, have to under, under, does, not know how, does not understand how to live on this potentially beautiful planet. Okay, but we're, uh, I'm not getting utopian. Uh, each one of us, we have a life to live. And these are just a few hints that of the ongoing way. And then, of course, it starts, uh, well, just one uh, memory that I just, uh, just came to me, uh, a teacher that I had in Thailand some years ago, 
regarding right speech, he said what will help you most of all is when you start to tap silence in your mind. And uh, I was puzzled by that. Well, why will my, when my mind becomes silent, will I, uh, my ability to understand my speech develop? He said, when your mind becomes silent, you start to, uh, you start to be able to really hear what you're saying. And if it's, let's say, a disc, like a discordant note, if you're a musician, or, you know, chalk on the blackboard that screeches, uh, it's painful when you hear yourself saying something that's BS. Do you know what I mean? Exaggerated, not true, uh, designed to form an impression. And it does, and people like it. And then somehow it leaves a residue that is a little unsatisfying in us. If you start to pay attention. If you don't, roll on. You know, just go on your merry way of uh, saying things that aren't true, that make you feel good. Okay, so uh, it's a substantial activity. And it's not just psychological, because in the seeing of it, there's a letting go of all kinds of attachments. Otherwise, it won't happen. And again, it takes us to clear mind. Finally, the mind itself. And now, of course, we're starting to get into the big stuff we already have with speech. And in this particular approach, in Vipassana and the Theravadan tradition, uh, I don't think it's different than the other Buddhist schools that I've trained in, but I don't know them as well. Um, we've, I've suggested becoming more familiar with the body, uh, just how, how to take care of the body. Now, to back up a bit, Buddhist wisdom is needed there as well. The wisdom of the Buddha is very, very important there. Because you can get so good at caring for the body, and in this age, many of us are. There's just a lot of information and encouragement now to eat properly, to exercise, to do the very things I just said. And science is, there's some staggering breakthroughs. Herbal medicine, which I know a little bit about, is bringing together high-tech with folk medicine, so-called thousands of years of herbal wisdom and laboratory techniques of extraction at... Uh, enable herbs to be so pure and effective beyond what the ancients could do. Uh, and now yoga even made, was it Newsweek or Time magazine? Someone a while back, someone in some exotic posture. And so you can get so good at being healthy that you look younger, have more energy, are more attractive, and get compliments. <laughs> <coughs> and when you have more energy, you have more energy for more mischief. And if you're trying to bring the body into some reasonable condition, I'm not saying it, become obsessed with it. In order to provide the basis for deep seeing and the development of liberating wisdom, and in the process you get sidetracked into having a body that you want to live forever, to defeat aging, to defeat everything. The war against aging, there's one magazine that which I was asked to subscribe to. Join us in the war against aging. <laughs> what? Sounds like we might lose. Uh, yes. It's like uh, we declare war on the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, the battle is already... You can raise your handkerchief as the white flag. It's over. Uh, so it, it's that view of things. Um, but the possibilities 
of vanity and getting attached to the nature of the body, the attractiveness and health and youth, youthfulness of the body, has always been there. The Buddha specifically talked to it. And a reflection that you get in many Buddhist monasteries, no matter what age you are, it's given to young people, really young. I'm of the nature to age. I'm not exempt from that. Everyone ages. You reflect on it, not to be a downer, uh, you know, oh, why don't you let, let the kid enjoy his youth? It's not that. It's that often there's tremendous vanity attached with youth and with health because it's as if we have it forever and we don't. Okay, so there are many safeguards. Some of you have been around the block a while with Buddhist meditations. You know about them. There are reflections and contemplations to balance it. But then um, we get to the mind itself. And in this lineage, in this approach, what's emphasized is seeing the three poisons of the mind, the three toxins of poisons. You've heard it if you've been around here. They're sometimes called greed or grasping or the wanting mind, that mind that's always wanting something. It can be very subtle. It can be enormous. And it can want anything from sex to food to power to money to fame to a whole country to anything. It's constantly wanting to become something better than what it thinks it is, to get more than what it thinks it doesn't have. That mind is considered a toxin. Of course, uh, you need desires. It's not saying desire is bad. It's uh, when that mind is there, the practice is to be mindful of it, to come to know it. It's in its form as an obsession, fixation, that it produces suffering. Obviously, uh, the desire to eat and uh, to take care of yourself is a, a natural part of survival. What I'm talking about is what produces suffering when it's out of control and distorts everything else. So self-knowledge would, of course, begin to, in those mind moments, it's not in the abstract. It can come up anywhere. It's coming to see in those mind moments, is there craving and wanting in that moment? Want, want, want. And if there is, what's that like? See, that's where the learning how to live comes in. It's not saying don't crave and don't want because it's bad. You're a bad person. What it's saying is it's an unskillful mental state. It doesn't work. It doesn't bring happiness. It brings suffering to you and to others. And so when the mind is in that state of neediness, of wanting, uh, don't be in a hurry to rid yourself of it. Slip in under and see what that's like. Is it a nice feeling? If, if so, carry on. Make it even stronger. Accumulate even more. More fame, more money, more sex, more power, more whatever it is you want. More shoes, more cars, more, I don't know, it can be anything. More meditation accolades. The mind is free to latch on to anything and turn it into a torture chamber or heaven. Okay, so... What's the mind like when it's that way? What's the mind like when it isn't that way? When the mind is at peace with the way things are. Again, um, learning happens, it's in, some, in, some, in some ways it's not so different from old Pavlov and Skinner. Because a lot of learning goes on that way. We begin to see this learning is painful. It doesn't produce happiness. That's wisdom, all these religious paths exists because suffering exists. If there was no human suffering, would we need religions and churches and synagogues and mosques? I don't think so. We need them because we're suffering a lot. And to some degree, 
they may help. I, I want to get into that's a big one, right? Okay. Uh, and so how do you learn? It's not to just find, follow it blindly. It's not a new belief. Buddhists don't believe to not grasp onto things, that everything is empty and arises and passes away. Fine. I'm a Buddhist now. I believe it. And uh, however many Buddhists there are in the world, I feel a sense of belonging. We're, we Buddhists feel that uh, there's no self and we don't believe in grasping. I think at a certain point it won't be very fulfilling. It's just another belief. It's dead. It doesn't have much liberating power, if any. In fact, it may just do the reverse. And as you begin to see, when the mind is content, as one of my teachers called it, just enough mind, rather than not enough mind, to see that. So that's a valuable piece of self-knowledge. It enables you to learn your way out of certain emotional states that are not working for you. If they are, full speed ahead, of course. The next one is aversion, or aggression, or anger, or in the extreme violence and killing. What's it like when you're furious? What's it like when you're resentful, envious? Is that fun? <coughs> it can be bittersweet. But when you look at it with a sustained look, and this is not about thinking. Mind, real mindfulness is like a, an empty, clean, clear mirror. And when you see what it's like to be that in that frame of mind, what the body is like, what quality of energy is that, that's like, and what's it like when that's not there, when let's say perhaps there's love or kindness or compassion instead. Maybe the first one, when there's an absence of craving or when you feel just generous and the joy of giving, but genuine giving. And so you begin to feel your way or learn your way into uh, ways of re-educating your own mind and only you can do it. It doesn't come from a book. It comes from reading your own nature. Now, the meditation practice, which in Buddhism is central, is designed to equip the mind so that it's strong, stable, and clear enough to be able to do this work. Because if the mind has no steadiness, my words may sound reasonable to you, but you won't be able to do it. Because as soon as fear comes or something else comes, blown away. Well, that's true for all of us at the beginning, but it's like any other art. It can be learned. If you want to learn this art, do you want to learn how to live? Maybe you're happy the way you're living already. Good. Maybe you just came here out of curiosity, or your boyfriend comes here, or your girlfriend comes here. You know, you're welcome, but that has, doesn't have much energy. The other toxin, or kilesa, uh, has to do with the quality of, of the mind that is, uh, when the mind is confused, dark, uh, ambivalent, uh, ignorant, hesitant, befuddled, bewildered, uh, because the root problem in the Buddhist teaching is ignorance in the mind. That is, the mind is deluded. And that's why it thinks that the more it grasps and accumulates, the happier it will be. It really believes that. When the mind gets clear and looks at it, it sees that that's not so. Not as a new ideology. It see, you can have lots of stuff and be happy. Or you can have very little stuff and be happy. That's not the point. The point is, what is that quality of mind, and what does it produce, and what are the consequences? Whether you call it karma or cause and effect, 
if you're willing to see how you actually live, you can begin to see those actions, verbal and otherwise, that are beneficial for you and for others. You can see the ones that aren't. But are you willing to learn? Are you willing to actually learn? Sometimes what that means is um, seeing mistakes and apologizing. Sometimes it means uh, being very discouraged and seeing, my God, I thought I was through that one, but I guess I'm not. But it's not to give you a final report card. It's to, uh, what we're learning is how to live a real life. The only way that I know that life can be real is if we are, if we're real. And so how do you do that? So the seeing has to become more and more accurate and clear. Uh, to begin with, our minds are not clear because we're invested. We have strong likes and dislikes. When a mind is not clear, it's not enjoyable. You know, I think we all know that. And so see what that's like when the mind is so confused and makes decisions that it doesn't even have confidence in. And see what it's like when the mind feels clear. Sometimes that mind comes upon you in meditation, certainly, but it's not limited to meditation, where suddenly life is so much simpler. You see, the, you see uh, someone's hungry, you see somebody's sad, someone's happy, and it's obvious what to do. Life is not any easier in one sense, but the simplicity of it, which comes from the clear seeing, enables the behavior to be appropriate, accurate, wise, kinder. Okay, so you can see that that's a big piece of the practice. Uh, I want to get questions and answers going, but I, I want to link it a little bit in a small way with what is going on since 9-11. What I'm about to say is not new, uh, because the problem that we have has existed since the time of the Buddha. It exists now, and it existed who knows? In, in the Buddhist scheme of things, it's a beginningless beginning. There isn't some origin of the universe. It's sort of like on and on and on. When you have something as striking uh, as that unexpected uh, event that occurred where thousands of people who are just <gasps> helplessly killed, uh, and it, you know, I don't have to repeat that. You all know what it is. It uh, is quite, can be, for most human beings it is, quite a shock, uh, just as an individual shock. Uh, someone who's in good health suddenly dies, and it's uh, everyone surprised. Or some disappointment, or just the opposite, just something totally unexpected happens. Every moment is a moment to learn about yourself, but this one uh, has tremendous potential. That is because there's so much energy that's trapped in the reactions that come about when something as dramatic as this happens. The tremendous amount of fear, the anger, the apprehension about uh, the future, seeing perhaps how uncomfortable you are with not knowing the future. See, it's, again, it's self-knowledge never takes a holiday. So that whatever happens, uh, in addition to it being a social event, which the whole planet shares, it's an individual event. How are you taking what has happened? Forget about how anyone else has. I've been speaking to really a lot of people for months now, not only here but elsewhere. Some people will say, I don't feel all the, the horror and the terror that so many other people do, and I feel bad about that. Uh, 
I said, okay, that's what you practice with. How, how, do you, how do you feel? Well, I just feel a little bit neutral. Okay, start there. Don't feel you're supposed to feel like someone else. Self-knowledge is, is really training in honesty. But it's not that you ever have to tell anyone else. It's you being honest with you, which is most important. Even if you lie and do something awful and never get caught, no one ever finds out. You found out. And it forms a residue in the consciousness. Perhaps sinks down in, in the subconscious, but it's there. And it has a, a debilitating effect. It's, it's, it's a psychic toxin, just like food that's inappropriate. It can be a, a toxin for the body. Okay, so what is happening elicits very strong reactions. And if you're a person of practice, if you are a yogi, you're practicing Vipassana, some other meditation, this is a hard time for everyone. There is no one who's exempt from it. But it can be also a very rich time for you because it can unearth fears and problems that have nothing to do with 911. Many people have seen that. Fears that they thought they were done with or that they uh, basically had buried since childhood. Old wounds. Um, if you're willing to practice with it and begin to take a look at what this brings up, uh, it can, a lot can be learned. In order to do that, of course, the clearer your seeing is, the better. I'm going to go a little bit over, if you don't mind, but I don't think it'll be more than five minutes over. I know some of you have a tight schedule. By the way, if you have to leave right now, I won't be offended. You might have to catch a train or something. It's fine. Um, we have to work with the mind that we have. Some of you are relatively new. Maybe you just walked in and this sounds interesting. You can start practicing right now. It's not to wait until the mind is perfect. Whereas if you have an interest in understanding your life as you live it out, understanding here is not just, it's not thinking understanding. It's not about, it's not chronic introspection. We already know how to do that. Many of us do. It's not that. It's much fresher and more alive and actually finally enjoyable because it brings energy. You don't get headaches from this one, even though sometimes what you see is painful. Okay. Um, so we start with a mind that is ill-equipped, perhaps, to do this. And we have to do the best we can. Uh, I don't know this is... Well, a few weeks ago, I was watching CNN and I saw what we're up against. And actually, it was a pretty good metaphor for why meditation exists. And I was watching an interview with an Afghani woman who was, uh, obviously had suffered a great deal from the Taliban, and she was trying to describe the condition, uh, situation for women in, uh, in Afghanistan for the past five years. The interview is, there's a question and answer going by. But do you know what crawl is? Those of you who don't know it, Crawl is that incessant, non-stop ticker tape that keeps going. You know, uh, Osama bin Laden has been found, the president, a president who just received an award. Uh, you know, just it keeps going. I guess 24 hours a day. I don't know, but every time I turn it on, there it is again. Uh, and in this occasion, and some of it is repeated old stuff. I said, Hey, wait a minute! I heard that 10 days ago. I mean. Uh, who's, someone's asleep here. I think, you know, get rid of that. In the meantime, I've missed 
you know, 30 seconds of what this poor woman is saying. On top of that, on the upper right hand, where they start showing what's going on in Kandahar, bombing and, you know, the, you know, and so there I am and there's an announcer and music and I'm trying to watch, you know, this woman is trying to tell her story and I'm really interested and in the meantime, the crawl is getting me, you know, sort of like, I'm looking up there and then Kandahar is over here with planes and finally, it just occurred to me, who designed this? This is insane. I said, somebody must think that this is a good way to do things. You know, and I realized, of course they do, because that's how their normal mind is. And I realized, this is how our mind is. You know, let's say you're right now, or maybe this is, you're more focused here, hopefully. Uh, there's something happening, and you're aware of it. In the meantime, the crawl is always going on. The mind is trying to think, blah, 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 blah. I used to be, I will be. That's a lot of baloney, but smile anyway. And so, you know, you know uh, and then uh, you think that the Kandahar is just happening in the upper right. Then there are images floating through your mind at the same time that you're looking and the crawl and the images. And that's the mind we're going through life with. Uh, meditation exists because that mind exists. And it's sort of like, how come at least sometimes turn crawl off, <laughs> let Kandahar take a rest, and just listen to the woman tell her story without music and, you know, America fights, you know, all of this uh, hoopla, just a simple story of one person asking a question. It seemed to me that was much more powerful than whoever drummed up that. Okay, so that's what we're, we're up against. By the way, this is not, sometimes people who are new get the idea that, oh, what he's saying is that thinking is no good. I'm not saying that. Thinking is magnificent and necessary uh, and beautiful. It's created so much. It's just that we don't know how to use thinking. Thinking is using us. It would be as if you have a beautiful car, whatever car you like, Mercedes, what, I don't know, whatever car you like, and it's great and you drive it around, but then you have to get over a lake. You don't drive the car into the lake to get to the other side. The car can do certain things, and it can't do certain other things. So you get out of the car, and you get on a boat. Do you see what I, or you get, uh, we're using thinking in areas where it's counterproductive. For example, we're trying to measure what's immeasurable. Okay, to get to the link, because I, it's really quite a big subject, but, um, one of the things that I think the Buddha is saying directly is that you are the world. As you get to know your own mind, you're getting to know everyone else's mind too. No matter where you go, we all, uh, if, you, if you prick us, we bleed. Uh, we don't like it when our children are hurt or die. Uh, we, we're afraid to get all, you know, we, we're all humans in, in back of all that different co outfits and cultures and foods and ideologies and all the rest of it. And as you get to know yourself, I have found it to be so, without any special effort, you do start understanding other people better because we're, we're the same. Okay, so the, to jump a lot of steps, to whatever degree my mind became clearer because I've been looking at what this has evoked in me. This thing, it has evoked things in me. And I, without going into my particular biography, because it's not important. Because what's important is what this event has, has and may in the future bring up for you. In those moments when the mind is clear, what I have seen, and I'm not telling you to see this, and this didn't come from books that I read, 
although I'm sure there's nothing novel or particularly interesting or creative about it, but I saw it myself. A lot of it from watching news and listening to people. First of all, what becomes really apparent is that there's an enormous gap between technology and wisdom. It's like Grand Canyon. Wisdom is feeble. I mean planet, the level of understanding on the planet, the level of maturity of us human beings. We haven't learned how to live together. And it seems as if we don't want to spend energy doing that. Our energy has gone in the direction of magnificent technological accomplishments. I'm not saying to stop that. But if all the best energy of every generation goes in that direction, don't be surprised if we don't understand ourselves because it's not held up as an important value. It just isn't. So children are brought up to become great scientists or technicians or whatever it is. We're not brought up that the quality of your life is supreme, really important. You're here to live your life. What is the quality of that life? Not the gross national product. Now, that's okay. So education isn't just to get a job. Education should be to understand yourself. It's part of, under, of, of education. So I, I think that part of the problem is an immense... The wisdom is overwhelmed by technology. We can't handle it. We've created uh, energies that are so far beyond our grasp that we're all in danger. This is not about uh, uh, the Al-Qaeda or Taliban. That's topical. It's about the, we're all in this together. It's a planetary problem. And the sooner we see it, the better. And our contribution to it is there. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a fanatical 60s peacenik who just never recovered from the 60s. Uh, I'm not saying that. It just seems obvious that it isn't as simple as good guys and bad guys. That in some degree, each one of us has contributed to what's going on. If we still have lots of greed and craving, we want lots of things. And if we want lots of things, they have to come from somewhere. And we need the energy, and we want it. And then parts of the world, the energy comes from there. And in the process, all kinds of imbalances are developed. Like we have to have oil from the Middle East in order to do what we like to do. And we don't want to be deprived of that. That's an individual thing. And if someone would say, well, we should get out of Saudi Arabia, but you'll have to turn your thermostats down to 60 well, I don't know. I mean, uh, Saudi Arabia looks pretty good to me. They like us, you know, just they can't say it publicly. That's what I hear. Anyway, um, the gap between the, the, the massive power of technology and the lack of development in us as individuals, self, self-knowledge, and extend that to the race, the human race, that is, I feel it comes down to something like this. And it's not that I want you to believe this. It's that find out what you see. This came out of some seeing. What I see is that the power of the media has created, helped create in a dramatic way, a global economy. And everyone's talking about that, how wonderful it is. But when you look at the media, it's very clear what's going on. It's not, to me, it's, it's, in, it, it's that we have a global economy, but we don't have a global consciousness. Consciousness is tribal still, and I include us. If you have a better word, we're not a tribe. Uh, sectarian, nationalistic, so that you have people, we're all in each other's faces through the media and through uh, the global economy, but consciousness is not 
the kind of consciousness that can live in a global economy because we're still mired in tribal mentality where it's all about me and everyone's doing it. I'm not singling out America. The United Nations is a bunch of self-interested individual countries jockeying for power and influence and veto this and that. Uh, so certain people are are rubbing up, cultures are rubbing up against each other. They're not ready for it. They don't understand them. We don't understand. And yet we keep coming together and coming together. There has to be a commensurate development of consciousness. And so when you work on yourself as an individual, this may sound really utopian. And maybe it is. But personally, I'm going to do it anyway, even if it doesn't help the world. I am doing it, I hope. Uh, as you work on, because greed, hatred, and delusion... We can see it in our own individual life, but the world is an extension of that. Countries get greedy, and countries get angry, and countries solidify, and countries simplify reality. And, uh, you know, so I just want to leave it at that. So in, you, in working on yourself, you are in some, even if it's tiny way, uh, contributing, planting a seed, if you will, for a world where uh, we go deeper because right now we're living in such superficialities. We are willing to do business with each other, but we take the most superficial aspect of the person to be what's real. It isn't what's really real. Anyone who's meditated knows that. When you go deep, you're not a Jew or an Arab or even a Buddhist, for goodness sakes. When the mind is clear, there's no name tag for it, there's no brand name, there's no label or slogan, that applies. It's just your being. This being is there, and it's wonderful. And it's not that we have to abandon our particular country and ethnic group, and that adds the color to the life, but it doesn't have to be held with such ferocity uh, and such making... We're so identified with the surface of what's going on because we haven't gone deep enough into ourselves that if everyone's doing that, and it's so great that we have a global economy, but we have a provincial mind, how can that work? And so I would say, maybe it's self-serving because I'm in the business, but self-understanding is what's really called for now. There's a shortage not of energy, but of understanding. And that's for all of us. We don't understand ourselves as a, as a planet. And all the conferences and legislation and peace treaties, they're helpful. I'm not against doing sensible things. Uh, they just are so weak and feeble because the mind states haven't changed. Just look at what happened to the communists. Even if, if you like it, a good ideology. But people were just the same people, and it didn't work. As the inner is much more powerful than the outer, finally. Okay, I'll get down from my soapbox. But it's not, please, I, I really sincerely beg of you, I am not trying to convince you of any political ideology or what, whether you should be for the war, against the war, protest. Let the clarity of your own mind help you know how to behave from here on in. Because if what's been said is so, it's not over. It's going to unfold and there are going to be more challenges. The practice should help you live in the midst of those challenges by developing some more wisdom so that even though we're all challenged, you're not overwhelmed by what happens. If anyone has to leave, please. And let's start the questioning in. Okay, I'll, let's give it a minute or two.
Go ahead, don't worry about it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I just, uh, when I was sitting, I had a hard time. And, uh, I felt a lot of discomfort and uh, impatience. And uh, it's kind of, you started off talking about self, self-knowing. Right. I, I was aware of, of that, of those qualities like impatience and, um, and discomfort. But it, it didn't feel to me like self-knowing. Yeah, okay, that, that, let's back up. Please go more slowly because you've already said a lot. Uh, first of all, you don't like it, is what comes across. You don't like being, of course, who does? You don't like being restless. Right. right. Yeah. And you say, I was aware of that. Sounds good, but I don't know what you mean. You see, because, no, no, slow down, slow down. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a, what I mean is, we all use words like mindfulness and awareness, but it, it, what actually is going on? Is there a sustained, non-judgmental attentiveness to it? See, if there isn't, it's just oh, people will often say, well, I know that, I know that, but it doesn't go away. First of all, part of why it doesn't go away is because you are invested in making it go away, and so you're not fully with it. Uh, I'm answering your question beyond your question because it's a good question. We're in a, in a hurry to solve problems. You present... Be patient. <laughs> Struggle with your... Uh, I know you're enthusiastic. It's good. I'll, I won't take too long. Uh, wh- often what happens is something, if something comes up and we experience it as a problem, uh, we've had a lot of practice solving problems. And because we want to solve the problem, we never get to see what the problem is. And so uh, the awareness that I'm talking about little by little gets refined so that it's a seeing that has no investment in it. It's not seeing in order to get something out of it. It's just a sustained, non-judgmental, there's no thinking in it, attentiveness to what's going on. Now, uh, period. Now, how do you see that? Well, I understand in that it's not seeing so that I can make it go away. It's just to be with it. And if it, even if it persists, it's not trying to make it stop right. because it's uncomfortable. Right. It's just seeing it for what it is. Right. I think I know in the moment when it was happening, it, it didn't feel like I. It, it didn't feel like self-knowing because I I was um, um, sort of taking it out on the, you know kind of uh, you know felt really crowded in here and it was hot and, and so it was more. Of, no, but you see, let's, let's move. self-knowing would be, how do you relate to feel, feeling crowded and hot? The person next to you feels crowded and hot, and it's fine, piece of cake. And you're, why do they, they should only let 50 people in here. So self-knowing is begin to, do you see, it's, it's, it's an ongoing, do you see what I'm getting at? So there's no, it's not like it's, well, this isn't self-knowing. I don't want to get into, some, you know, semantics, but... You can learn something about how you dealt with restlessness, how you dealt with, because restlessness comes, and hot and crowded comes up outside of 331 Broadway. And as you begin to see how you, that's what I meant, relationship is the teacher, your relationship to being crowded, your relationship to feeling hot. Do you see what I'm getting at? That's all. Is that okay? Yeah. Oh, great. (laughs) Please. Uh, yesterday I was walking home from the supermarket and I uh, had grocery bags um, and uh, a 
snowball landed near me, and I turned around. There were these two teenage boys, one of them smaller than me, one of them bigger than me, and uh, they were throwing snowballs at me. And I turned around and said something like, "I asked them to stop or something." Big mistake. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so they came up to me, and the, the younger one seemed really angry. He was like, stop looking at me. And then another friend of theirs drove up in a bicycle. And while they were distracted, I just walked away. Uh, but they followed me, and they kept throwing snowballs at me, and they hit me with a good one in the back of the head. And uh, I was angry, and I turned around and said something like, uh, uh, I don't know, you know, grow up or something. experience on and off has been with me since, and I really don't know mm-hmm. how to respond in a situation like that. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to tell you how, but let's say, here's what, how practice can help. For the big stuff, and this is a relatively small thing, but it still had happened, and who knows, it could have become a dangerous thing. Okay. Your reactions were just that, they were mechanical reactions. You can't help it. You're conditioned that way, and you felt invaded. You know, however you felt. Okay. So what you said to them came out of that mind. It has a whole different energy. The energy has the energy of being annoyed, intruded upon. Who do you think you are? Maybe a little frightened, and so forth. That's what they feel. Okay. Um, the practice is being aware of what is, being aware of what you, how you took crowding and hot. The, you see, you're irritated. Okay. Now, when you become, and you can get better at this uh, with practice, your reflexes become much more quick. Uh, the awareness slips in under the, this kind of thing, and it can happen eventually lightning fast. It falls away, and the mind is clear. And I don't, want it to, I don't know what you should say, although I can make up a few things that I hope I might have. I don't know if I would say it. But out of the clear mind, you have a much better chance of answering or not answering in a way that's skillful and wise. For example, here's another one that maybe your mind didn't think of because of conditioning. And I'm not saying I could do it, but it did occur to me okay, as you were speaking. Especially when the kid hit. You know, I'd turn around and say, hey, you got a great shot, terrific. In other words, you use Aikido. Instead of, you use, instead of fighting them, you join them. It's like frivolity, you know, it's a winter wonderland. Hey, that was terrific. Whoa, that's a good shot. Uh, but I'm not offering that as a formula, as a recipe, like next time do that. I'm saying out of clear mind can come surprising responses, not react. Reactions are mechanical and typically don't help because the energy is very different. When the mind is clear, there's a much better chance the response of being adequate, appropriate, and actually helpful. Do you see what I'm, I'm, again, no guarantees. Is everyone clear on that? And that's why self-knowledge is so, it helps you live. It really helps, because you can save yourself a lot of wear and tear. Uh, not getting angry at everything that happens to you that isn't, that, uh, after all, who got angry? Your sense of being separate and having a right to your space and walking and going home and not being whatever, blah, blah. Okay, as you see that, that starts to fall away. In practice, it gets lighter, thinner, more transparent. And the snowball hits emptiness. It is an experience. Is that big a deal? Or the reaction becomes much weaker. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I think years ago, before I started to meditate, I would have had a bigger 
kids. Right. Might have even gotten into some real problem with these kids. Right. So, well, it sounds like you almost did. Yeah, but a <laughs> little less yeah. than, than maybe a few years ago. Right. The Taoists have a very ni- uh, n- nice way of putting it. That is, if you're uh, in a boat going down a river and another boat crashes into you, uh, but there's no one in it, you don't get angry. But if there's someone in it, you get furious. <laughs> Please. Um, as a beginner, I often find that the, uh, it's hard for me to really be mindful in this non-thinking way that you're... You know, if, if I'm experiencing something, I sort of recognize that using thoughts yes. rather than using this kind of thoughtless mindfulness that I'll hopefully get better at over time. You're not sure. Doubt. That's, you have to see the mind. Right. Self-knowing would be like, I'm not sure. He keeps saying that as if it's uh, automatic, you know, it just grows, comes with the territory. Just show up, come on Wednesday nights, do a retreat now and then, maybe go to IMS. One, and then one day I'll just be just like him, seeing everything, you know. Re- uh, so you see, you see doubt there. Sounds like you have some doubts. Do you? Uh, sure. Okay. It's I, normal. It's not, it's not unique to you. Right. We, Since, since thought seems to be the only tool I have right now for yeah. self-awareness, right? Uh huh. Not the only tool, because occasionally I think I'm mindful for a millisecond or something. But um, right. what's your advice about using thoughts? I understand. Self-knowing, you know, uh, and when? Or, so if I'm meditating and I'm thinking about myself, do I do I stay with that thought and be thoughtful about myself? No, or should I, should I just be all oh, back to the breath? Like that's a thought and so let it go. You know, yeah. and I'm sure there's a transition over time to something else. Okay, if you're sure, then I don't have to answer. Bless that. <laughs> <laughs> um, first of all, let's be clear what mindfulness is. There's no thinking in mindfulness. Otherwise, it's not what we're talking about. Now, you can be mindful of something and thoughts are going on, but they're not in any way hampering the clear seeing. So it's not like you have to stamp out thought, but the thoughts don't have that compelling quality. Do you see what I mean? Now, with practice, especially as you start knowing the difference between thinking and everything else, see, right now the mind to begin with is quite confused because we don't, uh, one of the, one very important chapter of self knowledge has to do with understanding the role of thought in life and to see how limited it is. That in its proper place, it's magnificent. But we have equated it with living itself. We have given it tremendous authority. Probably many, if not most of us, for all I know, everyone in this room makes a living from thought. You're probably good at it in some, some realm. Okay, It's not to stop that, but uh, all spiritual life, the real religious mind... This is not particularly Buddhist, but the Buddha is very, perhaps unique, I don't know enough about other religions, to leave a clear roadmap and clear methods to do it. Uh, The religious mind is to go beyond all this. Okay. Um, In other words, that's the immeasurable that I mentioned earlier on. Okay. Now, all you can do is, I can't, if I tell you something, uh, I don't think it's very helpful. Uh, All you can do is, begin to pay attention to how you live. Now, there is a form of insight that's kind of 
still helpful, and it's not just for beginners. It's called reflective insight. And that's um, where seeing and reason and logic and intelligence, putting two and two together, is useful. And then there's direct insight. Uh, the, the direct insight is uncommon. Probably you don't have that unless you learn how to do it. And that's why we're here. The reflective insight, probably everyone in this room already knows how to use it, and it can be refined, where you get a sense of things. Uh, let's say you see the World Trade Center, the towers go down. From that point on, many people have a deeper understanding of the impermanent nature of life. Uh, and it's mixed with thought. Some people, let's say, if you see it and it goes so deeply into the heart that it goes well beyond the World Trade Center, when you start to realize, even without the World Trade Center, it's always been like that. Everything is impermanent and doesn't have an enduring core. It's empty of an autonomous self. self, self. Um, so that different levels of depth of insight the deepest comes from a seeing that has nothing to do with previous accumulations, meaning thinking, knowledge, and so forth. That doesn't mean it's worthless. And on the way, what you're saying is useful too, sure. And, but practice mindfulness as best you can. Use it in simple ways. It's not finally about the breath. The breath is there to help you be mindful. It's about being mindful about what's going on. Uh, take simple activities like the dishes and make it a meditation. You're washing your dishes and notice the mind, blah, 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 and then you just gently come back, blah, 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 just gently come back and just do the dishes and let that extend out to more complicated matters, which are, of course, more difficult. You know, and the snowball thing is more complicated because there's a threat involved and we know what teenagers are capable of now and who knows what it could lead to. But you have to start where you are, otherwise it would be an impersonation. But it's not a, what you're doing is not a waste of time, not at all. Yeah, please. Um, I, mean, I love your examples, Larry. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about too much personal stuff, and I'm sorry if I'm being intrusive, but what your reaction to 9/11 in your life? You said it brought up stuff for you. Uh, it's not that I have nothing to hide about that. It's that we're here to help you understand how you do it. But as an example. Of I, well, I gave you one. I told you that by following my own reactions, the mind became quiet and I saw that this is a world problem. It's a planetary problem and that all of us are contributing to it by having minds that are not contemporary with the way the world is now. We have a, the mind is still tribal. That's the best term I can come up with. And the world is changing so fast uh, that uh, boundaries are, uh, you know, we're, we're all intermingling and we don't know what to do with it. The Soviet Union falls apart and suddenly you have everything is endless ethnic groups emerging which uh, with pride and flags and foods and uh, fighting and you know all you know whew, uh, whereas what the world needs is not that and begin to understand like let's say if you get critical of what the president's doing or what's going on take a look and see it look into yourself for example if your kind of patriotism, let's say, uh, personally, I'll go this far. I love the United States. I come from an immigrant background. I know what my parents have been through. I inherited their suffering in other countries. And uh, America has been incredibly good to me. I have no words for it. 
uh, I did serve in the military, blah, blah, blah. But all I'm trying to say is that it doesn't, and I'm Jewish, it doesn't stop me, but it's taken work over the years. I have a deep love of Israel. I can't help it. It's conditioned. Okay. But for a, a while now, I honestly feel tremendous sympathy for the Palestinians. And I hear the Israelis' argument is uh, so one-sided. It's like they produce something and then they complain as to why they get hit back. But then the Palestinians are doing it as well. It's like neither of them can be happy unless the other one is. And they, all they do is so that I'm able to, let's say, love this country but not set it up in such an exclusive way that I can't hear what certain Arab thoughts are certain criticism of what's going on and try to weigh it, even uh, the bad guy, Osama bin Laden. I've tried to listen to what he's saying. Some of his critique is not insane. The solution is not, it may be, you know, and him as a person is not that interesting to me. So if you're willing to, everything that's going on reveals something about yourself. So in some ways, I'm contributing to it. By, let's say if I'm marching around with the flag and uh, I've seen it in Harvard Square where someone was doing a political thing and they did, this was within the first two weeks they didn't have an American flag and someone came over uh, it wasn't even about pacifism it was about a different political candidate in the next election and they said well where's your American flag you never served in the military and I saw the beginnings of a fight okay, and I looked at this person you know, and said I'm a vet and how come you and so uh, that kind of American stuff is not helping anyone, and that's part of what has contributed to it. And then we're all doing it to each other. So if you can liberate yourself, and of course the Buddhist teaching is no matter what you say, it's always like, start with you. Yeah. Um, I, I will say something. This may sound... I hope it doesn't sound conceited. It, because to me it's not... It's something that grows out of practice. There is hope. Okay. Um, the period prior to this happening, and for a while prior, to, has been an extremely happy one for me. And it has not been interfered with by this. There's just a tremendous ongoing joy. Okay. It comes from meditation, quite honestly. And I also like my life. But I also have experienced sorrow. They both can coexist. The sorrow has been sometimes about the low level at which the human race is, is steep. It's not abstract to me. It's sort of like, how can we do this to each other? Okay, so uh, there's a certain depth of something that doesn't get pushed around by the event. There's something, and all of us have it. That's the point of what the Buddha is saying. There's something in us that's stronger than anything that happens to us. Whatever name, I won't name it for right now. Whether you call it Buddha nature, original nature, and it's accessible, you know, to begin to taste it. Okay. That doesn't mean you become like a stone. If anything, you, it's more poignant. You become more sensitive to cruelty and so forth. And both are coexisting inside of me. But there's a, there's a, uh, a foundation that doesn't seem to be budge. That doesn't seem to budge. If you think that's ego egocentric, I'm not saying I'm a big enlightened guy. I'm just trying to describe something. Please. Yeah, I um, had moments uh, this fall where I, and I think given 9-11, it, it makes a lot of sense in some way, some of what you were talking about tonight, Larry, just 
kind of these moments I'll be on the bus or on the T where my own finitude will really strike me and kind of it sounds a little bit dramatic and silly to put into language, but I've had I've had this for the last several years and it's definitely increased over the last year and it's accelerated even more this past autumn. And I on the one level I, I know it's an opportunity, it's something that's For what? See, if, if I just want to make sure what I hear you saying is more and more you're starting to recognize deeply the obvious truth that you're going to die. Yeah. Okay, now what? And, I, and, and yet I, I find that I get very scared in that moment and um, not really able to go too much farther with it. I, I well, you see, you want, there's nothing next. Why do you have to, because you want to solve the problem by going farther. You're not facing the fear. Do you see what I'm getting at? The practice is so exquisitely simple-minded. If you remember this, it applies to almost anything you can tell me. It doesn't mean you don't act, because you have to often act, and you do the best you can, like with the snowball or whatever it is. But if, if death has brought up fear, that means you're alive. You know, and the Buddha has intentional contemplations to accomplish that. Okay, we don't need that right now because this event has made it more authentic in a way than any, in a sense, artificial reflection, which then brings up fear. But if you, do you have a practice? Do you, you do this practice or something like it? Yeah. So then the fact that fear comes up is fine. Then practice with it. And don't get invested. Well, I'm still, I still have a little bit of fear left. I have a little bit less. Uh, take it from moment to moment. You know, life keeps... Liberate yourself from this moment, because in the moment when you're afraid, but you're not awake, you're enslaved. In the Buddhist sense, you're attached, you're enslaved. But in a breath, if you wake up and meet the fear with openness and receptivity, that doesn't mean it's not going to still be fearful. It will, but it's a very different experience when the fear is experienced consciously. You do that a few more times, and fear becomes workable you begin to see, oh, is, fear is just fear. It's no more than that. Then you start to begin to see, well, how come I'm so afraid? You see that it grows out of thinking. But right now, in a, you're not dying. I mean, except in a profound way, we all are. Uh, and so that you've had thoughts about your impending death at some time in the future. Now, if you, the reason I said now what, because if you just bring up the fear of death and you don't do anything creative or useful with it, then what's the point? You've just made, you've just, uh, made your life uh, uh, more frightening and it's not wisdom or liberation. Do you see what I'm getting at? Don't think of liberation as some uh, Steven Spielberg special effect. You know, sometimes there are uh, breakthroughs that happen in meditation that are quite dramatic, but most of it is blue-collar labor. And there's a moment of freedom, a moment of slavery, a moment, and it, it, uh, just take it one moment at a time. In the moment, it's the pr- insight meditation is the practice of liberation. In a moment of either grasping or pushing away, you're not free. And if you pay attention, you'll see what it feels like. But in a, again, if you suddenly see how you're holding on and what that feels like, it tends to loosen. And you're still afraid, but it has a different energy altogether. Please. Could you just elaborate a little bit exactly how to work with fears that come up? Sure. You're saying, you know, work with it. 
nothing special except that it's a powerful object. Um, let's say fear comes. Okay. Uh, throw the word fear out. There's an energy that's there, and you can feel it coursing through the body. Right? There's very strong bodily sensations if you're afraid. It's not vague. The heart, the posture changes. Well, you know. Okay. That's available. Go right to that with mindfulness. Okay. And then the mind will start churning out thoughts that are all um, disabling. You're going to die. You'll be crippled. It's doomed. It's hopeless. Uh, they're ideas. They're just thoughts. Now, with practice, you can begin to see that they're just thoughts. And if you can attend to the energy of the fear with mindfulness, that means sustain seeing. And at first, that's hard to do because we're afraid to look at fear. Most people never begin. They're lowered into the grave with fear, I'm afraid. Whoop. I mean, I didn't mean to be clever, but it's true. I'm not really afraid of that, but it's... Unless you, uh, what I've seen in the people that I've worked with and myself, unless you get fed up with fear, and that is a piece of self-knowledge, you begin to see the price you're paying for fear, how it cripples you, cuts off all kinds of creativity, prevents you from taking certain risks that could be creative and useful. And you begin to see that it's quite a steep price that we pay for allowing fear to control us that then there's an incentive to gently, softly start inching towards it. And it's the same practice as with the breathing. It's to receive it as it is. It's just energy. See what I'm getting at? Okay, that's the purest and the most direct way. And at first, it'll be hard because there'll be resistance. You'll be afraid to look at fear or you'll hate it. And then so you look at that. You look at how how much energy there is in not wanting to look at fear. You heard what I said. Did you understand my words? Just now, seriously, it's a question. Okay, and let's say fear comes up. And then you say, great, it sounded good up in that hall, but now the last thing I want to do is take a look at my fear. Then take a look at that. Take a look at how much you don't want to look at fear, at resistance. You'll feel the body, it's not about fear now, it's contraction in the face of fear. And then little by little, you learn your way into how to... You see, fear is workable because it's observable. If it weren't observable, it would be hopeless. It isn't hopeless. But it's just like any other art, the art of cooking, the art of painting. It's putting things in their right place. Fear it has, a, has a proper place in life. Sometimes it's quite intelligent and saves us. But a lot of it, the fear we're talking about now is neurotic fear. Is not, there isn't a real threat in this moment. It's not doing you any good. It's just exhausting you. I guess what, what I fear, when fear comes up, is that if I pay attention to it, it's just going to overwhelm me. That's an idea. <laughs> isn't it? Well, that's... It's but, you, but it's a, a very convincing one. You believe in it. But I've, I've often found that, you know, that it's overwhelming. So but who I makes overwhelming... That. How do, you end the, how do you cut out of the cycle of me? First of all, you've concluded that it's overwhelming, and then you find that, well, I was right, it is. It's a one-woman show. You're, you're playing all the roles. You see what I'm getting at? That's what we're all doing. It's Marcel Marceau, you know? But if you don't know, it's a, it's a, you're doing the whole thing. But now, I'm not trying to 
force your, your head into the fear. You get into that fear and you look at it if you're a yogi. I'm not saying that. You can be gentle, but it does take a certain courage at the beginning and an incentive, an interest in wanting to really understand this so you can be free of fear or at least weaken it. I've seen people with horrible panic attacks, horrible, learn how to disarm them. Uh, and they're not doing it. It's the same old boring Vipassana technique, nothing new. It's just that what you're being asked to be mindful of is not something you want to be mindful of, and it's, it's, a, it's a rough one. But it too can be learned. So let's reenact it. Oh my God, this is overwhelming. Start right there. Forget about fear. Just fe- realize that you've already concluded that this is hopeless. And you may f- it may be so big that right now your awareness isn't ready for it. There may be an element of truth in what you're saying. And so that, that's why the shamatha or concentration practice is also so important. Do you know what I mean by that? Okay. Do you, have you worked with the breath in an exclusive way? That concentrates the mind. And that, and that makes the mind more fit, strong, steady. It needn't be the breath. It can be mantra. There are, there are many, many ways. But you take one thing and you come back to it again and again and again. Do you, do you see? Okay. Out of that, the mind starts becoming more steady. And so then you won't be as likely to feel overwhelmed because probably it's true. Your mindfulness is... It's a baby mindfulness. You're, you know, you haven't done so much of it and certainly not with fear. And so it is easily overwhelmed. So it's both in a way. It needn't have to... That as you start little by little approaching it and seeing that maybe it's workable, but also... See, every time you're mindful, that's what gets stronger, not just on the cushion. You mindfully do the dishes, you're taking a walk into the square and you're aware of the experience of moving. Uh, every time there's a, a mo- you mindfully hear a bird chirp, the, the, the car stops because it's a red light and you're with three or four breaths until the light becomes green and you drive. All of that contributes to refashioning and reshaping the mind so that it is able to do the things that I'm talking about. It's not like you walk in here, you hear this rap, and then like, far out man, and you just do it. This is not a, a quick fix. This practice is for adults. What the Buddha is saying is you're responsible for your own happiness. And he's, we are being given the tools, both in terms of teachings and also techniques, to enable the mind to be up to the task of looking at itself. Because to begin with, it probably isn't. Yeah. One last one, please. Sure. The concentration on the mind is very important. Yes. So otherwise, the mind gets overwhelmed. Yes. Like fear or sadness. Anything. Retreesa Barry, yes. You kind of change, Larry. You know, that's <laughs> I probably change too. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like the same jerk. <laughs> oh, stop it. Let me be playful for God. I don't think I'm a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of mellow, boss. 
I've also gotten older, for goodness sakes. Fifteen years of living on this strange planet will mellow anyone. <laughs> yeah. And maybe the practice has helped some, too. Yeah, but what about you? Well, We're talking about you now. I wonder what I would say now, and it's probably the same old thing. But look, um, it's hard for me to respond to what you're saying because, no, for the following reason. Everyone I know, when you begin, you do run into how wild the mind is. There's no question about that. Now, when you say, I don't know what, first of all, some of it is not your fault. Sometimes the practice is conveyed as if what's really important and real is retreats and sitting. Maybe walking, okay, that's useful too. But then 99% of our life is what's left over. How long can you sit on the cushion? Or how often can you go to Barry? Okay. The quality of mind that I'm talking about that's adequate to face the fear that you're talking about, or whatever, sadness, loneliness, whatever it is, to get free, is not just developed in sitting. It's developed in, in life itself, just naturally, by more and more paying attention. But if you're not interested in taking that on as something worth doing, it's not going to get stronger. Look, is there something in life that you love to do? Uh, let me just uh, continue about the same thing. Well, after I couldn't do it well by sitting, I just kind of let, let go. And I, I live my life day to day just to be as much mindful as possible, but continuously. And um, and let, I just let life just be whatever it is. I didn't want to. I was afraid of my, my meditation. I'm trying too hard, but just let it happen. So it seemed like it's easier doing a day to moment to moment for your daily life than sitting makes my mind very sleepy or un, unclear, unproductive, and I kind of stuck. Reading Krishna Murti, I said, why? He said, don't ever sit that it doesn't work. So I said to myself, I just have to do it, you know, continuously. But it, it, and now after s- several years, I came here and I'm listening. And I have been starting sitting again. And I think maybe... maybe don't make such a big deal out of it. Yeah, but I think I... You see, you, you just said it. If you don't, you have to... Well, wait a minute, don't put, I didn't, you know, it's not this kind of thing. 
uh, it's one useful skill in life to take the breathing, let's say, and stay with it and come back to it and come back to it. It doesn't have to be either or. Either it's daily. By the way, many people have a very hard time in daily life, and they get really good at just in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. So everyone's different. Now, if you'd come to an interview, one thing that I think would be helpful would be uh, ease up a little bit. You're trying too hard. What is it that... And there may be fear. That's often when we get sleepy a lot, we're afraid of going deeply because we're afraid of what's there. I'm not saying it's true of you. I don't know you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That, that's another thing I had a problem. The more I quieted my mind, it starts some kind of unusual things going through my head, like I heard voices and some lights and all kinds of things. And, you know, I was somewhere Did you ever bring it to a teacher? I was in a monastery sitting... Uh, Did you bring it to a teacher there? There was no one there. Okay, but let's say if you brought it to... What they would... So I was afraid doing it home by myself. Okay, but look, the instructions are no different. Whether it's lights or it's this or you... T- whatever you want to tell me, watch it arise and pass away. There are extraordinary things that happen to you when you, when you get very concentrated. And the medicine's all the same. They're all illusions from a profound point of view. Dogs turn into cats, which then turn into rabbits, and you feel like the body has disappeared. You feel like you're not breathing anymore. Uh, no one dies from these things. They're, uh, when the mind, and it's the same instruction: is that this is the scenery. It's just that well, I never, I've never been here before. Fine, get to know it. Maybe it's like a country you've never been to. But look, we, we this can go on and on. Uh, the fact that you're doing daily life is wonderful. Keep doing that and ease back into the sitting. Sounds like you already are doing that. And just do a bit each day and don't make such a like do or die thing out of it. Or it's like this is says whether I'm really a meditator or I'm not really. But let me ask you, is the daily life mindfulness, has that made a beneficial, has it had a beneficial effect? Yes, yes. Like I, you you see, should I tell me that. So you think we're all spiritual? Okay, but it's about you. If you have a lot of people to support you, great. If you don't, then there are other... Look, there were years when I had no support. Then you develop other qualities like self-reliance. And then when you have the support of a community, that's wonderful. Take advantage of it. Because life is both together and alone. But finally, whether it's Atlanta or the moon, you know, it's you and you. And... If the door of daily life has opened up to you, which it sounds like, wonderful, that's great. And now slowly bring sitting in. But finally, the, have you ever heard the proof of the pudding is in the eating? It's a, an American or Western cliche. The proof of the pudding, in other words, whether the pudding is good or not, is not in the ingredients or what you look at or smell. Mm-mm. It's in the eating. Okay. So if it's helping you to get free, I'm wonderful. If you're still going round and round and round, I would question and see, what do you mean by sitting? What do you mean by mindfulness and daily life? But it sounds like what you're doing is useful. So just keep doing it and just... Do you do retreats from time to time? That's too far away. What? That's too far away. Do it in your own home. Take an afternoon or a day. I like 
like when I travel, like I right now I'm staying in a hostel and you know, aversion to this and that and it's painful so I, I'm very mindful. I get, I get mindful. Okay, does the mindfulness help you live in a situation? Yeah, it does help me. Yeah. Okay. But good. I just don't do maybe if like fear is overwhelmed or they are very strong. I don't know how I would deal with that. I probably Well what do, do fears come up for you? No, no, I don't want to be abstract. Do fears come up for you? Not as much as you used to. Mostly now I am mostly in sadness, sadness. Okay, so then that's what, look, look, our practice is with what is with what's there. It's the same instruction for sadness. It's not a new one. Okay, could we have a few moments of silence, please? What I mean by the proof of the pudding is in the eating is that whether you do the breath or you do a mantra or you do mental notes or you do a koan or uh, you sit for three months or you uh, shave your head or you grow a beard or you eat meat or you don't eat meat or uh, just endless forms that you... Finally, are you getting free of your suffering? If you are, good. There are just lots of different ways to do it. 331 houses one way to do it. There's no, I have no illusions. This is not good for everyone. I hope it's useful to at least some of you. If it is, full speed ahead. If it's not, keep searching. Find a different method, different technique, different teachers. I did. You know, there's no... Uh, they were all skillful means. Freedom is just freedom. It has, it's not the property of Buddhism or Jesus or no one. Excuse me if I've stepped on anyone's feet here, religious feet. (laughs) Okay.